0: Few Americans remember anything significant about Thursday, August 17, 1961. According to the morning newspaper published in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the next day, communist rulers in East Berlin were preparing to fight to preserve their barbed wire barricades. More than 89,000 guests visited the Wisconsin State Fair in West Allis, and a whitefish bay boy was killed playing pirates when he was crushed by falling sand and gravel in an eight-foot ditch. But the third headline on the front page of the Milwaukee Sentinel announced, Wisconsin Synod, Missouri Split, and a front-page article in the afternoon paper, the Milwaukee Journal, heralded a most traumatic event for what was then the fourth-largest Lutheran church body in the United States the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod voted late Thursday to sever relations with the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. A little more than four decades later, Wisconsin's decision to sever fellowship with the Missouri Synod remains a crucial milestone in its history. You're listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm your host, Zelwyn Heidi. Our other host, Willie Grills, in God's providence, is not able to be with us tonight. But that's okay. All things are in God's hands. And with us tonight is a very special guest, the Reverend Dr. Mark Brown of Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary, here to talk about the breakup of the Synodical Conference. And also joining us with our guest is our usual, one of our usuals. Adam Kuntz. So, fellas, how are you doing?
1: Great, thank you. Great, good to be here and excited to uh, talk about the subject.
0: And maybe just for the sake of our listeners, Mark, would you introduce yourself? You know, who are you and how are things out your way?
2: (laughs) Well, you said my name the correct German way, although fewer and fewer people are still doing that, Mark Brown. And I probably have to make one quick correction just because Somebody somewhere is maybe having a heart attack. I teach at Wisconsin (laughs) Lutheran College, not at Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary. My mistake. My college is a four-year liberal arts college. It is a member of the Synod, but it's independent of the Synod, and I've been teaching here for 32 years. In fact, when I took the call here back in 1987, the call letter said that I was then obligated to pursue the terminal degree, which is what led me to follow through and go to graduate school and take this topic. So I've, as I said, I've been here, I'm half-time now, I'm half-retired, but I was here for 30 years. I was before that a parish pastor in a few years in western Michigan and a few years in western Wisconsin. It was to my benefit, I guess, to do this story that I grew up in Milwaukee because Milwaukee is maybe the only city there is that has a, a pretty active group of both Missouri and Wisconsin Senate members. I mean, it's a real Big Lutheran town and a mixed town that way. This couldn't have happened in St. Louis because I think there's one Wells church in the whole town. But here there was <laughs> such a, such in Milwaukee, there was, and to some extent still is such a large Lutheran audience. In the days before the breakup, there was so much uh, interconnectedness, congregations worshiping together, preachers preaching for each other, sermons, intermarriage, going to schools, which is part of what made this story a painful story to tell, actually.
0: Hmm. I noted at the end of your book, I, I thought it was very uh, fitting how you talked about one pastor looking back on those days with a certain amount of regret and, and wishing that it could still be that way. And I I, I at least would hope for improved relationships between our two synodical bodies as yeah. well.
2: Well, and that that's almost 20 years. Well, it's actually more than 20 years ago that I did the survey of the pastors. And that was the generation who had memories of that and they used the language a lot of little sister and big sister, and many pastors and people in Wisconsin, as the younger, kind of smaller, less self-assured sister, looked up to Missouri, and some (laughs) of them said to me, we could never imagine that this was going to ever happen to us. But there were changes going on in some corners of Missouri, as, as I saw it or found it, that we were slow to believe. I think our our leadership was a little slow to believe them. And now I think, I think we have a different situation of readership who has no memories of this. And it's, it's a brand new story for them. And so there isn't, at least I think there isn't the same sort of nostalgic urgency to want to put this back together because they don't have that memory.
0: Well, I think maybe for the sake of our listeners, we should start that story. You know, like you say, it is new to perhaps many of us, especially those who have no memory of it, but we have to begin somewhere. I think it's worth starting all the way at the beginning and talking at at least briefly about the early history of the Wisconsin Synod and how she came to be, the relationship she had with the the Missouri Synod. So can you kind of, can you lay down that groundwork for us?
2: Yeah, part of that story can be told simply in comparing Wisconsin's founder, Johannes Mielhäuser, with CFW Walther. And I think it tells you something about the history of the two synods in that there are Walther churches, the Walther League, Walther halls. You can buy little nine and a half inch statues of Walther to put on your dashboard. And yet (laughs) most of the Wisconsin Synod members have never heard of Mielhäuser. Now it happens that I know, always knew of him a little bit more because I, I, I belonged to the church that he started in downtown Milwaukee. But whereas Walther came wanting to preserve a group of confessional Lutherans because he had come to fear that they would be persecuted in Germany to the point where they couldn't maintain their presence, Mühlheuser was unionistic. He was, I, I think in his own heart, he was quite Lutheran about justification and the sacraments, but he was willing to have fellowship with most anybody. He came to the United States in the 1830s and became a member of the Buffalo Synod. Yeah, the Buffalo, New York Ministerium first, and, the, and never the Buffalo Synod out east. And he was never ordained. And so he came to Milwaukee, which was on the edge of the frontier. And he was a gatherer of diverse people that had Lutheranism in their background. And for a while, his church in Milwaukee, and he met several other pastors who were similarly more unionistic, Those churches and Missouri did not know of each other's existence for a while. Until about the early 1850s, they became more aware. Missouri had its couple of churches in the Freistadt area in Wisconsin, which became one of the founding pieces of Missouri. They tended to look at Milwaukee as their territory. And Walther, whether you appreciate this about him or not, he took it upon himself to try to scold and enlighten other church bodies. And so we were you know our little group the the some of the pastors that came and became Wisconsin pastors actually their churches advertised that we're looking for a pastor who can do both Lutheran and reformed that was one of their selling points they'd mm-hmm. use the same building and have two different services and in the middle 18 beginning of the early 1850s to the middle 1850s Wisconsin was changing because the kind of pastors they were getting from the mission, organization in Europe was more confessional. And so they were changing the church kinda of, the body kinda of from the inside out. And Muhlhuser as an older man was a kind, gentle pastoral man, but he didn't want to talk about theology. And the stories go that when the pastors conference got to talking about doctrine he'd go out in the street and have a cigar. <laughs> because he was a warm hearted guy, but he see he didn't he didn't like some of the things about the old Lutherans and what he saw as their their quarrelsomeness. He he once called the confessions paper fences. But there was a group within Wisconsin that was quietly building a more confessional base. People like Adolf Haneke, John Botting, pastor and professor were bringing this. And I think it's significant that it was only a matter of weeks after milhauser died that Botting and others petitioned Walther in Missouri to say, please come and talk with us because we believe that we're more in agreement than you think. And they met in Milwaukee in 1868, I believe, 67 or 68. And Walther said, all our fears about Wisconsin were unfounded, which was a generous thing to say. And the tide inside Wisconsin changed. The story that was told 90 years later was that Missouri was saying to Wisconsin, we helped you out so much 90 years ago. Why don't you help us out more now as we're experiencing some of our difficulties? And that was never quite true. That The change in Wisconsin came more from the inside than the outside.
0: Adam, do you want to ask anything here or chip in?
2: Yeah, I wanted to ask
1: if you think that Wisconsin's perception of Missouri was affected by that early tension between them, especially from the, the standpoint of the more confessional men within Wisconsin, did they feel unjustly accused, or, or how did they view the Missouri Synod even after they, they began those talks after the Civil War?
2: Well, I think many of them would acknowledge that some of the accusations were true, and the men who came over here from the mission societies were often not deeply trained, certainly not as well as Walther and some of his colleagues mm-hmm. were. And, uh, they came almost more as what we would call evangelists. And, and so they, they welcomed. Uh, there were a lot of stories about good relationships kind of over the fence between a Wisconsin, mm-hmm. Missouri neighbor. The Wisconsin pastor would come to a sense that he wasn't a very confessional pastor and he'd say to his Missouri neighbor, I, I really think I should leave my group and come to you. And the Missouri pastor would say, no, you, you stay where you are and you help make Wisconsin more confessional. Now I think, in later years, some of the Wisconsin people said, you know, we never always appreciated the, the attitude that Missouri sometimes talked to, to us with. The, one of them, yeah. the quote was, you know, we were no angels, but neither were they. And I think that, I think that's something that affected the relationship, sort of the cultural relationship between the church bodies ever since. You know, Missouri was half again as big as Wisconsin in the 1890s than we are today. So there, they were always a bigger, more powerful church, Wow. you know, Concordia. Okay. And then there was that little bit of time in the early 1870s when Walther wanted to enact the state synod system and have just one massive district, if you will, in each of the states, which essentially would have had Wisconsin swallowed up by Missouri. And so we closed our seminary. In Milwaukee for eight years, and that's why August Pieper and Franz Pieper went to St. Louis for seminary and came under the influence of Walther. But Wisconsin really dragged their feet, its feet about doing this. And of course, the conferences, the synods met every year. And finally, about 1876 or 77, Synodical Conference president, who was Missouri, said, well, you aren't joining us because you don't love us enough. And I Adolf Heineke popped right up and he said, just because two Christians love each other doesn't mean they have to get married. And and that kind of set the tone. It's, it's a little gossipy, isn't it? And, and, and that set the tone for this sense of Wisconsin saying, we love Missouri. We look up to them. We need them. We want to be like them, but we don't want to get swallowed up by them. We want to maintain our independence. And I really got that sense sort of in a third generational way from these at the time older pastors in the nineteen nineties who would talk about what they grew up with and how their fathers talked to them who were pastors and as I said they had memories of going to prep schools together from the time they were kids, but there was something a little different, just like sisters can sometimes you know have an edge with each other that only they understand. Yeah. And there were three different times when Missouri and Wisconsin came quite close before nineteen thirty eight where they could have merged into one, and it never quite worked. And one time Missouri called it off, one time Wisconsin did. But we greatly benefited from each other's presence and teaching. I mean, we so relied on Concordia Publishing House to do so much publishing. And in the early days when the the stand against the military participation, military chaplaincy, and the scouts was so unpopular, Missouri had those same views and we thanked them and they thanked us for standing along with them. So it came as a kind of a a shock. And from our point of view, even a feeling of betrayal when Missouri in the 1930s seemed to be saying something different. Yeah. And you you mentioned
1: the synodical conference. Would you just go back a little bit and kind of explain for the listeners? Because our listeners are from a variety of synods, but are mainly Missourians. And I just want to reiterate something that you mentioned that Franz Pieper, along with his brother and well, all three of his brothers, came from the Wisconsin Synod. But would you just kind of go back and explain the formation of the Synodical Conference? Because I think our listeners are going to be less familiar with that than with Franz Pieper.
2: Yeah, there was a vast wave of German immigrants into the Middle West states, into Buffalo, and then across the plains to Wisconsin, up the Mississippi River, through the Great Lakes, and so there were these pockets of Lutherans all over. And they were, they were separate. Of course, the distances were much greater. So Walther began calling free conferences in the 1850s. What he wanted to do was give all Lutheran bodies who would adhere to the unaltered Augsburg confession to come together to talk about their, their th- theological positions in the hope that they would find that they had common ground. And so there was a Michigan Synod and a Minnesota Synod and a Wisconsin Synod and an Illinois Synod. And then, of course, Ohio had been established some b- time before. It was a real checkerboard of church bodies. Mm-hmm. And so these, these, I think there were four or five free conferences. This is eluding my memory a little bit. As the 1850s wore into the 1860s, it began to be clear which groups were closer to Missouri. Missouri, by its strength and self assurance, was kind of a dominant voice. And Ohio wanted to be in this conference also. And then when Wisconsin was judged to be in the same theological position is Missouri, Minnesota was a very close ally with Wisconsin, so they also wanted to be in on this. Michigan, the Michigan Synod was in and then out and came back in only in the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. So there was, if my memory serves me correct, there was Missouri, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois, Ohio, and I want to say part of the one of the Norwegian bodies in Minnesota, So we joined together in 1872 in this kind of amalgamation of synods. Mm -hmm. And then it was some of the steps that Walther especially wanted to inaugurate to make this one truly one church body that made Wisconsin, and I would say Minnesota, too, buckle a little bit and say, can't we just be in federation without necessarily—I mean, Wisconsin said, you're asking us to die a quiet death for your synod.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, because Walther was looking toward organic union. Yeah. into a single national church.
2: Yeah, and and if church bodies have identities and, and personalities, I would say Missouri always had that that larger self-confidence of wanting to you know spread out and be known and and mm-hmm. some of the early leaders of Wisconsin were much more reluctant about that. Heineke was personally a much more bashful man and even uh, in the 1930s John Brenner who was our president then said there's no guarantee that Two church bodies who form into one larger church body are necessarily going to do their work more effectively. So that wasn't so much a doctrinal issue as I would say a matter of personality. And then, of course, in the late 1870s, the whole election controversy blew up the synodical conference where Ohio left, and it was very painful. And there was the anti-Missouri group, and there Wisconsin gained, I would say, some some let's say street cred with Missouri because Heineke stood shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with Walther on the Doctrine of Election, and Walther recognized that publicly. So then there was this sense that we really are on the same page with each other, and so we're going to recognize and support each other in this fellowship.
0: I would just remind, or at least inform our listeners, just in case they're interested, we do actually talk about things like the election controversy in some detail in our former episode on the Wawatosa theology. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I think is worth checking out, because it will certainly inform some of what's going on in this time period, too. Yeah. So the Synodical Conference begins in Milwaukee, like you said, in 1872, the free conference there, right? Correct. Uh, From July 10th to the 16th? Correct, correct. And what were the the early days of the Synodical Conference like? I mean, you've been talking about some of these tensions that are going on, you know, the the sisterly rivalry, but what were some of the, the good things that were going on? Because it it can't always have been
2: at (laughs) bickering with each other. It was very good. And I would say that the the single most frequent adjutant between the sentences when they each moved into some area and had some kind of what they felt some kind of claim, and then they would make what were later referred to as gentlemen's agreements, you know, uh, you go this way and we'll go that way. And some of them turned out to be pretty massive things. Wisconsin sent missionaries down to Arizona when it was still a territory, or just had become a state. No, it was still a territory, and began doing mission work. I have such regard for these these cold-weather Germans who go down to Arizona and have no idea what they're getting into. But apparently an agreement agreement was reached on a train car that, okay, we'll take Arizona and you take California, Wisconsin said to me, (laughs) having having no idea what was going to happen in California. And so when you read the minutes, you'll sometimes read that these were sources of first disagreement and then sometimes a little bit of, you know, hurt feelings and personality differences and stuff. But there were so many people, so many Germans coming into the land. August Pieper was a pastor in Milwaukee for a while. And his his great-grandson is Mark Jeske, who is still the pastor of that church. And he's involved at the Time of Grace Ministry. He says that his great-grandfather every Sunday would just come out, of the the narthex after the service and say, all of you Germans who want to join, you can line up over here because the boats were coming every week. And they talked, both synods talked about it would be the right thing for us to do to start working more in English. And they encouraged that, but they frankly could not keep up with the people that were coming. And you have records of congregations having two and three hundred Infant baptisms a year in areas of Chicago, wow. especially. I mean, there was just so much growth, and and a lot of places they started the schools before they started the churches, and the pastors taught school during the week. It was a very German Lutheran area, and also a very German Catholic area. There was just a lot of immigration, and that went on almost nonstop until World War One, and then things changed really dramatically. So there were the Missouri, I mean the Wisconsin. Michigan, Nebraska, and Minnesota synods formed an amalgamated joint synod. I guess you would call it. The terminology is a little confusing in the 1890s, which made them it made Wisconsin a little bit bigger body. And then the Minnesota synod had its own pastor teachings pastor school in Minnesota. They gracefully made it all a teachers' school, and that's what Dr. Martin Luther College was all those years. They had a little seminary in Michigan, and they kept the name seminary, but it was a high school. And so we improved our educational systems and we, you know, people went to Missouri Synod schools, too, because they had the big Concordia, growing in Concordia Milwaukee, and some went to St. Louis. But there was a great sense of, of a shared ministry. And this happened on the local level, too. In my own family, there was a, a church in central Wisconsin that had three inept Wisconsin pastors in a row out of seminary. Each, <laughs> each, came, each came a year was there maybe a year and a half, was was not competent for ministry. And in quite a bit of desperation they asked the veteran Missouri Synod pastor, maybe twenty miles down the road, and their congregation, would you allow your pastor to consider a call to us because we are really struggling here? And they asked him and the congregation was very brotherly and he accepted. And so there was this kind of easy coming and going. And yet when you get to the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties, it was almost like a game of musical chair. People Comfortably moved back and forth from one synod to the other, and then the music stopped, and some people found themselves on on the other side when their really their history had not had not always put them there.
0: All right, we'll be back with more word fitly spoken right after the break.
1: As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all them that trust in Him. The book that sits on your shelf, The One Gathering Dust, Word Fitly Spoken, asks you to once again take up and read. Hear the words of the only wise God and be saved. We'll be right back.
0: And we are back. I'm Zelwyn Heidi here with Adam Coons and our very special guest, Dr. Mark Brown, talking about the breakup of the Synodical Conference. In the previous section, guys, we had talked about kind of the, the background of of all of this, you know, the, the formation of Wisconsin and its relationship to Missouri. But now we want to talk about the actual tensions that are going to start to lead up to the breakup. So. Okay. Mark, where do you want to start?
2: I entitled Chapter 2 of the book The Gathering Storm, which was taken to be somewhat pretentious by one of my readers because that was the term that Winston Churchill used to describe these forces that people saw in Europe that led to World War I. I I would say that Wisconsin Mm -hmm. never suffered quite as much from the anti-German attitudes that Missouri did because Missouri was located more broadly where that happened and so wisconsin did not quite feel the impetus to to get out of its shell and become more of a a, an american an americanized church body and and one of the the basic facts i would say about this whole history which i didn't understand until i was well on the way through it was that this was not actually a war of wisconsin against missouri But it was a civil war within the Missouri Synod that developed, which Wisconsin was drawn into onto one side. And it had to do with issues of Americanization and and modernization of the church and reaching more people, the, the transformation into English. And so these things were happening kind of behind the scenes and in some corners. Some people remember this happening more in the eastern part of the United States and had a certain amount of suspicion for eastern Lutherans. And then certain events happened which gave Wisconsin and some other observers, too, even some observers in Missouri, a sense, something's changing here, but but what's going on? So, for example, the question of the military chaplaincy. Missouri's official position in World War I was that because of fellowship reasons, they would not allow their pastors to participate in the military chaplaincy program. But that was contested in some parts of the synod rather quietly. And the war was, our involvement in the war came and went so quickly before Missouri really reacted. Missouri thanked Wisconsin for also being opposed to involvement in the chaplaincy. We think nothing is changing, but behind the scenes it is, so that by 1935, Missouri president, new Missouri president, John Bankin, said that he sees no reason why Missouri pastors should not be participating in the chaplaincy, and everybody was kind of watching Adolf Hitler on the horizon, something was going to happen in Europe. So Wisconsin pastors asked their relatively new President John Brenner, are we going to be involved too? And John Brenner said, I see nothing about the chaplaincy program that has changed. And that was an especially difficult position to maintain because the chaplaincy program was so incredibly popular with people.
0: What was it in particular about the chaplaincy program that Wisconsin and Missouri at this time found objectionable?
2: Wisconsin appointed a study committee, And they came up with a statement, and they had three reasons, and I want to try to remember them right. One of them had to do with the doctrine of the call, and that the church ought to be calling pastors, not that they're being assigned or reassigned by the government. The second one, which kind of escapes me at the moment, was also related to church doctrine, I believe. And the third one was unionistic tendencies of the chaplaincy. And the stories I used to hear and we, I think we all used to hear, was that you got in the military chaplaincy and you were kind of either C, J, or P, you know, Catholic, Jewish, or Protestant. And so they had these great fears of having to do, you know, the Luther minister having to do the Methodist church service for a group of Methodists. I sometimes wonder how actually true that fear was. There were stories about this, but there weren't many church bodies. There were a few other small church bodies that also objected, they had the fear that if churches kind of let down their gauntlet during time of war, then they would legitimize that during time of peace. But of course, it was also not a very popular view for to say, our guys are going over there and they're fighting and they're dying. And not only do your pastors get military exemptions from service, they don't even want to go over there to be chaplains. And I think this is one area where the Wisconsin Senate managed its news publicly. But when you get back like into the, the correspondence, you see that there was a lot more unrest about that, even among some pastors than they were willing to to announce. And so that issue was never resolved between the synods. Missouri featured chaplain work on almost every Lutheran witness cover and talked about how their synods reputation had grown so greatly because all these other church bodies, chaplains and pastors said, wow, we met these guys from Missouri and they're not such a bunch of backward Germans like we thought they were. They're really great. And, (laughs) and, you know, Wisconsin kind of seethed at that. I often think of the line that that Dwight Moody had about doing evangelism in Chicago, and people criticized him, and he said, "I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it." And I think that's the <laughs> sense that, I think that's the sense that Missouri had. Maybe this isn't clean, you know, it isn't always perfect. Although they really tried to argue they maintained their doctrinal boundaries, but they said we're trying to do something here, and and that never resolved itself, and it isn't resolved today. And I think that from what I understand, the government has become far more sensitive to the diversity of American religion, which is much greater than it used to be. And I've talked with chaplains. One of my, one of my across the street neighbors was a Missouri Senate second or third vice president in a lifelong chaplain scene. We talked about this in friendly terms, but I still question whether some of those issues weren't there. So that was a divider, but that was kept pretty quiet.
1: I think that's a great overview. Let, let's look at the scouts, because that's that's another one that a lot of Missourians won't be aware of necessarily.
2: The, the Boy Scout movement was started in Britain by a man who, who was an agnostic who believed that boys could develop better discipline in their lives by having military training. And from the very first article issue of the English magazine of the Wisconsin and the Northwestern Lutheran, the editor said, this is an educational policy, which we do not agree with. You don't, use educational material. You don't even use the Bible to try to improve moral behavior without getting at bringing people to faith in Christ. And again, Theodore Grebner was the point man on this in Missouri. He wrote the editorials against this. He criticized it, and he thanked Wisconsin, and they were together. But what happened over the years, let's say 1925 to the early 1940s, and it's all in Grebner's mail in his archival papers, is that He made personal contact with national Boy Scout and Girl Scout leaders, and these leaders would say to him, "Why don't you like us? We're such a good organization." And they worked together for years quietly, and Hmm. Grebner, Grebner got what he believed were some concessions from Boy Scout leaders that they would not that they would not use some of their religious statements. Again, Wisconsin's view was that. The Boy Scouts created a unionistic environment for religion that they urged people to think that, regardless of their religion, they could do a good deed for God every day, and that they taught a unionistic, everyman kind of God. Those were the arguments, but it was also they also saw it as a bit of an assault on the education program of their children in the churches. So, without any sort of a warning, at the 1944 Missouri Synod convention. The Board of Youth Ministries, which Grebner sat on as an advisory member, put up and passed a resolution that says, We no longer have a compelling interest to oppose the scouting movement. We allow this to each individual congregation. This was a public announcement, and Wisconsin felt like they had been mightily betrayed. Then, the very next year, there was a little tiny, tiny blurb in the Lutheran Witness that talked about how many scout troops each Lutheran synod had, and Missouri had like hundreds of them. (laughs) So either they had organized all these things in about eight months, or else a lot of churches had had them for years and never said so. So I asked one of my own family members about this, and he says, oh yeah, we knew that this church so-and-so on Sherman Boulevard, Milwaukee, they had scout troops for years and wouldn't tell people. So in the Northwestern Lutheran, in our magazine, the editor wrote this one long editorial with not even any paragraph breaks. And we said, we are hurt beyond being able to express how could Missouri do this so publicly at a time when this is such a divisive issue with us? And then I heard stories in the late 1940s and early 1950s about Missouri missionaries starting churches in new areas that had been Wisconsin. Because now that the churches were disagreeing, these old gentleman's agreements were kind of falling by the wayside Mm -hmm and the occasional Missouri pastor would come into the neighborhood and talk to parents and say we'll let you have scouts if you join our church and <laughs> and i and i talked to one old Wisconsin pastor who had confronted this young Missouri pastor in his office in his church and it was as fresh to this guy as if this had just happened last week he said i talked to him and all he said to me was my church body says i can do this so i'm going to do this and it was at this point in about 1947 that Wisconsin said, we can't just keep talking about this among our pastors. We have to try to educate our own people. And that's when they began talking about the issues. So that was, uh, scouts were the issue, and it was around fellowship and prayer fellowship. The chaplaincy was the issue, and then in the ongoing meetings between Missouri and ALC representatives to try to bring about church union, Missouri was willing to participate in prayer opening prayers with the ALC group which was exactly the opposite of the position they'd taken in similar meetings in the early 1900s. What came to be clear was that fellowship was the, the troubling issue.
1: And I, I, I want to talk about that a little bit later on. I, I'd like to ask if you could flesh out for, for the listeners a little bit more both the figure of Theodore Grabner and, and what you mean by a civil war within Missouri. Were there particular issues or, or personages? And how did Graebner figure within, those, within that civil war?
2: That's really a, a complex and interesting question. What the American uh, American Lutheran Publicity Bureau did beginning during World War I is organize the group of like-minded pastors who wanted to improve the worship and have many practical ideas for simply organizing churches more efficiently. And it, it was hard to argue with that, although that wasn't necessarily really comfortable for people right away. But they maintained we are not challenging the doctrinal position of the Missouri Synod. But as the 20s moved into the 30s there was a mindset within some of the American Lutheran pastors that they were kind of I guess I would say embarrassed at the culture of this more conservative part of Missouri and in the American Lutheran magazine they would publish articles by Lutheran leaders from their church bodies and the impression was somewhat given or it may be taken that they had more in common with some pastors in the ALC or independent pastors than they had with some of the more conservative group in in Missouri. They were strong proponents for union with the ALC and the conservatives in Missouri said, we haven't really resolved our differences. And so that provoked a different group of like-minded pastors and leaders to form the Confessional Lutheran Publicity Bureau in 1940 as a response to this. And they published their monthly magazine the confessional Lutheran. So there was this battle of periodicals between the two of them. And where that, where that led to was that by the late 1960s, the um, American Lutheran became Lutheran Forum and the Lutheran Forum letter, which is still around. And the reigns of the confessional Lutheran were taken over largely by a hermeneuton with his Christian news, which became a right. much, much bigger enterprise altogether. And I think the one thing that changed was that Herman Otten managed to antagonize most of his followers too. <laughs> and that's the whole, yeah. that's a whole separate story too. But so, the, right. but so by the middle 1940s, this argumentation was going, going on monthly on the pages of these magazines. And I think that's one of the bullets that the Wisconsin Senate has managed to dodge that although there are different, let's say, constituencies in the Wisconsin Senate, We've never mounted a successful internal organization within the Synod and published and drew those lines darker between each other. Hmm. And I think it was a great gift of God's grace that that never happened because it came close. Now, about four or five years ago at the Lutheran Historical Conference meeting, Richard Johnson, the author of this American Lutheran Publicity Bureau history, did one of the papers. And so I said to him at the meeting publicly, is it fair to say that the lesson of the American Lutheran Publicity Bureau is that groups may start out saying we only would like to bring about a change of culture and improve our efficiency. But what can almost inevitably expect to happen is that these churches are liable to want to agitate for the change of some of the doctrine of the church. And he said, yes, I mean, right there. He had, he admitted it. Mm-hmm. Now I haven't gotten all the way through his, his history, which is exhaustive. And you yes. know, it's a really, ex- it's, it's like reading a full, Northern account of the Civil War. <laughs> I mean, you're getting the full account from one side, and and you know he I, I like I like Dick, but he you know he occasionally you know acknowledges the existence of opponents on the other side, but never really gets into them. So we really need someone to do with with the Confessional Lutheran what was done there. There are a couple of other studies of this that are much more you know, let's say balanced and get at some of the causes. But as far as sheer volume of information and accuracy, Richard Johnson's done a great service to historians. And so Wisconsin is on the sideline on this, and they're cheering for one side, and they're skeptical of the other. And then Wisconsin starts looking for other sort of symptoms. What's happening in Missouri? And they see something that seems different than it used to be, and they say, see, that's another sign. That something's going on in Missouri. And so they were scared of different liturgies and chanting and pastors in white gowns and the entire liturgical movement. And, and it got to be anything connected with Missouri became problematic for some. And I think what I mentioned with Zelwin on the phone, where it really got interesting was that Wisconsin's concerns were different in different regions of the synod. Dakota, Montana was very concerned about this. Pastors who moved from one district to the other would find that, let's say, Western Wisconsin or the Michigan district didn't have the same concerns at all because they maybe had a different local relationship with some of the Missouri pastors. So by the late 1940s, there was, there were no new, let's say, revelations on the scene. But then it was, everybody was starting to settle out. How are we going to resolve this? What's going to happen? But I must tell you, the whole scouting thing, I grew up under this. And I couldn't understand why our church wouldn't let us be scouts. I thought this was so cool. And so I remember we had this one new kid come to our Wells grade school. Good kid. You know, we all liked him. And then one Saturday, we saw him at the local shopping mall wearing his scout uniform. And this was like somebody being exposed as a former Nazi or something. This was just. <laughs> so, wow! Do you believe it? He's a scout, and yet we couldn't really define to ourselves often what really was the problem with it. We just we didn't know what it was.
0: Adam had asked the question, Mark, about Theodore Grebner. Could you talk about who he was specifically? That was very interesting with the the Policy Bureau, and that's great stuff. I just want to focus on Teddy Grebner just a little bit.
2: Grebner actually was born. In Wisconsin to a Wisconsin professor, August Grebner, but he, he followed the path into Missouri and went to Concordia Seminary. And then at a rather young age, probably in his early 30s, he was called to a Concordia Seminary. And he mostly, I don't know that he did a lot of teaching, but he and another man were the editors of the Lutheran Witness. And he was, he was the guy that took on all the uncomfortable and unpopular stands of the Missouri Synod. And he went out to fight him. He would write six, eight, ten editorials every other week for the Witness, and he presented himself as, you know, the, the the person who fought those doctrinal battles. And Wisconsin people looked up to him for doing this. However, his enormous archival papers at St. Louis reveal that his attitude was changing from the inside out because he got so much mail from very conservative Missouri pastors who were always pushing him to go farther (laughs) or accusing him of not standing as firmly as he wanted. There's one exchange, which is an exchange of about 15 or 16 letters between him and an Iowa pastor that essentially the pastor accused him, you're not as hard on life insurance as you used to be. And it goes back and forth. And after this exchange, is over about 14 months. And after this was over, Grebner wrote to his brother and he said, I think Missouri has more to fear from the conservatives within us than from the more liberal Lutherans outside of us. So you find out only after he's dead and after he carefully guarded his papers about this, that he was changing his mind for a long time. He continued to be an editor of the Lutheran Witness and continued to use that pulpit as a way to push the conservative view. But he also wrote with increasing frequency toward the American Lutheran, for the American Lutheran. And there he kind of played, you know, the good cop, bad cop on this, Mm -hmm. and he he urged early on that was that Missouri break with Wisconsin, and he was one of the older theological leaders that encouraged the gathering of several what they call the the roundtable meetings, I believe, which culminated in the group in 1945 Mm -hmm. in Chicago that published the Statement of the 44, which was another document that just blew wide open how much of a disagreement there was between conservatives, and well, I don't like the term, but the two sides in the Missouri Synod battles. I think as Grepner got older, he got his letters become more bitter and more pointed. He feels that he is being attacked by his own synod, by the other synod. Some people who knew him question whether he was entirely of sound mind the last couple of years of his life. I, I find him to be a fascinating man. Yeah, He was not like the, the peeper who would direct the, the thinking of the synod in a exegetical and doctrinal way, but he wrote English for the, for the lay people. And, and he had a huge impact that way and a, an enormous appetite for work, but, but a, a kind of a complicated character.
0: All right. And we'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken.
1: The word of the Lord says, get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. You can check out all of the Word Fitly Spoken podcasts on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. We'll be right back.
0: You're listening to A Word Fitly Spoken, Zelwyn Heidi, Adam Kuntz, together with special guest Dr. Mark Brown, talking about the breakup of the Synodical Conference. So in the previous section, we, we had a, a very enlightening discussion about uh, the tensions over issues like chaplaincy and the Boy Scouts. But Mark, you had mentioned that this was perhaps at its root a question of fellowship. Can you elaborate on that?
2: I believe that's true, and I don't. It was always at the root, but I don't think that was very apparent at first. Uh, Wisconsin pastors were getting different. They were seeing different things, in part because situations were different locally in one place versus another, and because some of them honestly had stronger ties to, to their local Missouri churches. So I would say in the period between 1938 and about 1947. The issues came to sort of solidify and, and, and then after that it was a matter of trying to decide what they're going to do with this. During 1942, 1943, in that time, the American Lutheran was, now this is a Wisconsin person talking, the American Lutheran essentially presented that a history, Missouri's history of its involvement or its, its, its understanding of prayer fellowship, which was different than the history that Wisconsin believed they both shared. Going back to the Walther Free Conferences, And Missouri began to talk about practicing a prayer fellowship versus prayer witness so that they could pray in front of representatives of the ALC, but not be assuming agreement doctrine.
0: For the sake of our listeners, could you maybe elaborate like what the the basic issue is here uh, over the question of prayer fellowship and why it was a question at all?
2: Well, what Missouri and Wisconsin and some of the other bodies of the Synodical Conference came to clearly resolve among themselves from about, well, really following the election controversy in the early 1900s, is that praying together as a group presumed and presupposed an agreement on all matters of doctrine. The disagreement over some doctrines, which admittedly would look like they were minor doctrines to a lot of people, were some of the issues which had kept the ALC from becoming in fellowship with the Missouri Synod and Synodical Conference up to that time in the 1920s and 30s. In fact, Missouri had pulled the plug on a near agreement in 1929. And so when, you know, it was, it was fine largely the idea that Missouri and ALC representatives would come together and again and would talk about their doctrinal issues. It was assumed that they would talk about them largely the way representatives of Missouri, Wisconsin are talking today in public settings, but with no prayer together at the beginning because the prayer would presuppose an agreement that had not yet been arrived at. So in the early 1940s, these meetings exist, and it's we're told that Missouri leaders are offering prayer. And they're doing this because they say they want to do this in good faith, and they're entrusting things to God. And when many in Missouri, as well as those in Wisconsin, said, but this is different than what you said 40 years ago, that you're no longer presupposing that agreement is the presupposition for praying together, they would say, well, but not all prayers are the same some are simply our opportunity to witness our beliefs in front of others. (laughs) And at the same time, individual Missouri members were being invited and attending various kinds of conferences about writing, about publishing, about mission work, about the war. Missouri and ALC, people together, and they didn't hide the fact that they were praying together at these things as though the union were accomplished. And so our President Brenner had this very striking line. He said, We continue to hear instances of expressions of a a fellowship which has not yet been concluded. Hmm. And that was always his argument. You are assuming what you need to prove. And so that went on into the war through the discussion with scouting. And then after the war is over and people can travel and they can talk, there are various meetings in different places which do not resolve the issues but only draw the lines more hardened. Now, what that required Wisconsin to do is to sit down and say, we must look at what we've said about prayer fellowship. Not only prayer fellowship involves chosen representatives between church bodies at public meetings, but how do Christians in their private everyday lives interact with each other when they know that there are differences of agreement? Do you simply cut everybody off? Do you simply pray with anybody because you assume they're all believers in their heart? And, and so Wisconsin had to, I wouldn't say change, but they clarified some of their, of their language about this. Missouri, meanwhile, had, I would say, several different camps of leaders that were speaking a little bit differently about this. And all through the early 1950s, they kept looking for terminology that would crystallize this. And about 1953 or 54, Wisconsin begins using a term called unit concept of fellowship. And I don't know exactly where this came from. I've heard some stories that this term actually didn't come from religious conversations at all. But they said, we say that fellowship is either you're in fellowship or you're not. And so if you are in fellowship, it comes about on the basis of agreement and doctrine. And it's then any expression, if you exchange pulpits, if you have communion, if you pray together. And Missouri, finally, it came to be a question about 1959, Or Wisconsin said to Missouri, "Do you understand fellowship to be a single unit, or either you are in fellowship or not, or do you understand it like ascending steps on a ladder, where you're in a certain amount of fellowship with some Christians, but then as you get deeper, a deeper understanding, you're in greater fellowship, say communion fellowship." And when the question was asked that way, Wisconsin said, "We're unit concept." Missouri's representative says, "We prefer the." the latter analogy, and that was kind of the, um, what should I say, the the impasse that was reached. And then it was just a matter for the, the citizen convention to vote on this. Would you
1: trace some of these growing tensions, especially after the Second World War? Is Wisconsin still more isolated from, let's say, the mainstream of American religious life, more so than the Missouri Synod? Or is Wisconsin Americanizing more itself at that point? Where where are they relative to each other culturally?
2: I would say it's accurate to say that Wisconsin was, well, in a certain sense, it's accurate to say that Wisconsin has never nationalized the way Missouri has. It's always, we, we're, we're in almost every state, we do international work, but it's still much more of a regional church body. But the question of how much do we acclimate ourselves to the larger culture, we were not the same place where Missouri was. And again, some of the sort of symptoms that Wisconsin was looking at to say, what's happening with Missouri, was that Missouri would say, not only after World War II, not only in the American Lutheran, but also in the Lutheran Witness, that all those other Lutheran church bodies, you know, the ALC and the LCA, that used to joke about how we are the ones that are never willing to get along and never willing to meet, they're finding out that we're not that way anymore. We're much Mm -hmm. more outgoing. Now, I think Mm -hmm. what you're also having at the same time is you're having a change at Concordia Seminary in terms of a lot of really gifted professors, but who were giving a different kind of message. And, and, you know, I got to know Martin Marty personally through my work with this and after I was done. He was very helpful. And, you know, he was a persona non grata in the Wisconsin Synod. And just having a relationship with him got me in trouble with some people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm serious, I'm serious. But but Marty, wow. okay. Marty and I think Martin Charlemagne, were emblematic among pastors and professors in most of Wisconsin of the change that was being ha- was happening but was not really being acknowledged in a, in a different culture that they had mm. and then sometimes that was even said some of the things that Otto Geisemann said in his editorials in the American Lutheran it, it he, he meant to write as though he was understanding of the fact that Wisconsin was just slower to catch on but they were pretty condescending and and I think a lot of people took great, great offense at, at this. And so then what began happening is that Wisconsin Senate is, Missouri Synod is not going to vote to break with the Synodical conference. Wisconsin Synod is saying, how long do we go on being patient until we finally say we have to make a break because they are persisting in the errors that we believe they're guilty of? And that term persistent errors became kind of a bone in the throat for quite a few people. By 1955, and, and the book goes into quite a bit of detail about how the floor committee for fellowship at the convention disagreed with a standing union committee, and so there was a majority-minority report. But what the, what the synod voted on was to recognize Missouri as an erring church body, but not actually call the break in fellowship until the following summer after Missouri met. That led some people into Wisconsin to say, you can't call somebody an erring Christian, but decide to break with them next year. And that began the break the beginning of the split off of some pastors into the Church of the Lutheran Confession from Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. The Missouri, the, the civil war between elements of the Missouri Synod ultimately also brought about a little bit of a civil war between elements in the Wisconsin Synod.
0: You had mentioned that part of what was causing some of this tension was Missouri seeking fellowship with what was then the ALC. Yes, and eventually leading to what you refer to in your book as the St. Louis Union Articles of 1938. Can you kind of explain what was going on there? Like what what Missouri was trying to do, why they come to this this agreement? All, the, all basically that kind of background too.
2: Well, it's a little hard for me to understand, and I think it's also another window onto Grebner, that Missouri, well, the whole Synodical Conference, and the bodies which became the ALC came very close to declaring fellowship in 1929, and there were a whole pamphlet, small books that were written about what lies between, what are the differences, and they had to do with issues like, did the ALC tend to regard Sunday as more of a Sabbath day, Were they less insistent upon not being members in local lodges? There were several issues like that, which seemed to be almost more in the area of practice, but that had stopped at 1929. And so those bodies like uh, Iowa, Ohio, and Buffalo turned around and formed the ALC. So they hadn't been that far away from us. So in 1935, when these discussions resumed, Wisconsin assumed that they would again go back and go at these issues. But the sense that we had, I can't be an objective observer here, but the ascension that I had was that there were some Elvis, in Missouri that were saying, well, let's, we're actually much more in agreement than we really realize we are. In fact, Grebner had written in print that Missouri and the ALC were already more in agreement with each other than some of the groups were in 1872 at the time of the Synodical Conference Convention, hmm. which, which didn't help things with Wisconsin. But then what also began coming out in Missouri or in the ALC were some questionable statements about the doctrine of scripture. What level of understanding of, of inerrancy does the ALC hold on to? And then what was Missouri saying about this? So when one of the things Wisconsin said is if Missouri and the ALC could not agree with each other on the union resolutions in 1938, the two of, and of course the rest of the constituent bodies of the Wisconsin, of the synodical conference were not told much about this. They said, we have to have a document that all of us can agree on before we can declare fellowship. And for the next 15 years, they attempted to come up with this document, and they never successfully had one. And the Common Confession in 1949 was the last effort. But all of the conservative elements in Missouri and Wisconsin, in the old ELS, the Norwegian Synod, all said that the statement on scripture in the Common Confession was evasive. And it wasn't so much that what it said was wrong, but that it was avoiding the Certain statements that were being made, be made that would say that scripture was less than inerrant. And then we began getting bits and pieces that some of the seminary St. Louis faculty were saying some of the same things. And of course, a very big blow up was the Charlemagne paper where Martin Charlemagne said that scripture was inerrant, but it could make errors on historical and geographical issues. And he didn't say this quietly or privately. And even though he retracted the paper, there was a strong sense that he still really believed it. And that was the great battle that, that Herman took on with him while still a seminary student. Now, I talked to Marty about this, who graduated from Concordia in '52, and he said, I never heard the term inerrancy of Scripture at St. Louis at that time, never. I heard authority of Scripture, never inerrancy. So hmm. there was this other issue looming, which we'll probably get to it at a separate time, And so that was, we were attempting to pin that down at the same time. But the more, let's say, the more concerned about, I won't say more concerned, but there was an element in different parts of Wisconsin that said, if we don't break with Missouri, we're going to have to break with Wisconsin because we don't know where Wisconsin's leadership is going to take us. And the answer that our president, beginning in 1953, President Nauman said, he always would say, we owe a great debt of love to the Missouri Senate for our past history. And, you know, we had always talked about our relationship with each other being sisters. But sometimes what would better apply would be a marital terminology where you have a couple that's been married a long uh, time. let follow me through. They've been married a long time. They have children. They have property. They have a lot of memories. You'll hang in there longer when this marriage is faltering than you would even consider going on a second date with the same kind of person you didn't know. I mean, that that kind of conversation mm-hmm. was had. We, we have been with them a long time. We will go the extra mile of patience. Now, Missouri, I don't think, didn't always appreciate our telling them that we were being patient with them. <laughs> you know, telling them, I forgive you for things they didn't think they had to be sorry for. Right. <laughs> and then Nauman also said, we're not dealing with one person, we're dealing with the whole church body. And so you know, you could point to individuals in Missouri that we thought were very stalwart, but there were others that we just didn't know about. And so that was a confusion. So in 1955, the Wisconsin Senate, the resolution was to break with Missouri. It failed by 16 votes. Then that began, you know, that, that began to to have the people that in Wisconsin that were bothered to stay, they managed to start finding each other. Uh, the impasse was reached in 59. The vote was taken in 1961, and even after all that time, the vote passed 124 to 48. There were still a sizable number of people that objected, but I was told off the record that all the individual district presidents in Wisconsin were kind of keeping hashtags how many churches in the Wisconsin city they thought might leave if we didn't break in 1961, and the number of over 400 would have left, Hmm. which would have essentially destroyed the existence of the Wisconsin Synod. Now, of course, there are people who are saying, well, that isn't the worst that could happen. And I understand that too. But remember that this one of the Synod's strong points of its culture and personality was they wanted their independence. They didn't want to be part of Missouri. They certainly now were not going to die on behalf of Missouri when they didn't even know if their message was being accepted in Missouri. There were certainly people in Missouri who lamented that we were breaking fellowship. And I know there was an editorial by a conservative Missouri that said, we always look to the Wisconsin Senate to be an anchor in the Synodical Conference. And one of our editorialists wrote that he appreciated the sentiment, but we were not going to be a dragged anchor. If this was not really where Missouri was going, we can't reformulate this unity if the unity isn't really there. right? And so in some ways, I think the direction that Missouri went in the 60s, and which culminated in 74, was... I never heard anybody write anything that sounded like schadenfreude in Wisconsin, like we knew this was going to happen. There was great sadness. I mean, like you see somebody whose life has kind of fallen apart. It was just really sad. And yet what happened, I think, with the walkout and the and the formation of the AELC and all that, I think it was a necessary sort of realignment of American Lutherans. More people are in the boxes where their ideology fits, I think, than they were at that time.
0: And I think that's maybe actually a good place to kind of stop for this episode because there's a lot of material to cover in the breakup itself, as well as some other issues that were going on at the time. Adam, do you have any, any last questions or thoughts?
1: Yeah, just one, just one comment. I think that the interplay here between theological affirmation and cultural circumstance is really important. I think if you look at Dr. Brown's book or you look at Richard Johnson's book, you're going to find those dynamics going on as well. Missouri is more widespread, more urbanized, more americanized and i i can't help but see that come up over and over again even just the fact that teddy grabner was trying to communicate in english is significant to me in the same way. So i think the those issues of how churches interact with their own history and their own sense of themselves within the united states is is really important for understanding both their their affirmations and also their changes.
2: May I just say that one of the most gratifying parts of this whole process for me is the number of younger Missouri Synod pastors who have bumped into one place or another, met at a conference, who have said, you know, I never knew any of this history, and I really think you were fair. That really means a lot to me. And of course, I would say to them, well, I got all this history from your publication, so it's all in there someplace. <laughs> but, but you, you're right about the interplay between doctrinal issues and an emotional sense of a sense of a loss of a relationship, almost a death of a relationship and a sense of betrayal. And this comes out so much in in, in chapter four when the, the break is actually going to happen and how people felt about that and what the mood was at this wisconsin city convention which is at wisconsin an high school which is walking distance from where i sit right now today over the last 10 or 11 what what maybe 9 11 years or so there have been informal non-fellowship conversations between representatives from missouri wisconsin and the els and what the missouri leaders are saying again and again is we never understood how much this hurt you how deep a wound this is how significant an issue this was for you Whereas Missouri leaders will acknowledge that this was hardly a blip on their, on their radar. And when I first made contact with Martin Marty on my own, and I wrote to him and said, I'm writing this dissertation. I wonder if you'd give me your take on it. And so graciously, the man was so gracious to me. He wrote back by return mail a three page summary of his view of it. Idiosyncratic. He said, off the top of my head, I have no books. And he said, we never paid attention the Wisconsin Synod in the Missouri Synod that I was in in the, mm-hmm. in the 50s and 60s. They mm-hmm. were in fellowship with us but ideologically they were looking toward the ALC and they didn't know we were there. Right, and he, sa- he said that to me a couple of more times. We just never paid attention. You're telling me history that I just didn't know. And yet in theory... He was in a pastoral conference in Chicago that was meeting with what was it, Wisconsin and guys every pastor's conference. There was a part of a culture in, in Missouri that just did not acknowledge some of its own membership. You know, the confessional Lutheran side found, saw them to be kind of the, I don't know, cro or whatever you want to call them, and then <laughs> saw that about Wisconsin too. And, you know, I found a remarkable editorial in Concordia Theological Monthly about 1969, and I want to say it was by Peepcorn, but I may be wrong, but that was when the vote was coming up for fellowship with ALC, and to read it from the uh, hindsight of a half uh, century later, the author talked about those people in Missouri who would not vote for the joining and fellowship with ALC as though they didn't quite even exist as Missouri Synod members. Hmm. Like, they were not even quite there. And yet, the vote that Missouri had to join with the ALC in 1969 was closer than our vote was with Missouri to break with them. And that 1969 convention of Missouri, as you may remember, emboldened all kinds of conservatives to kind of start fighting back.
0: Right. We appreciate having you on, Mark, and your vast knowledge of this subject.
2: I'm grateful to find out I remember as much as I do from 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, we certainly recommend your book, and we will include links for it in the show notes. Thank you. But we thank you for coming on, and we look forward to the next part of this series.
2: Great. Thanks for having me very much.
0: Yeah, Thank you. And thank you, Adam, for coming in and being a part of this as well. My pleasure. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard, you can check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org on facebook.com slash wordfitly or at Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Zelwyn Heide with Adam Kuntz and Dr. Mark Brown. God love you and God bless. Such differences of size, history, and personality allowed these sister synods to maintain separate identities, even as they worshipped and worked together, attended each other's schools, intermarried, and formed lasting friendships. It would have been all but impossible to predict that the synods meeting together so congenially in Mankato in 1932 would soon be embroiled in argument and division. The catalysts of those divisions, however, were already at work.